listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. The ushers are coming forward with Bibles. They also have packs for the kids. We welcome the Harvest Kids, the older group, here with us today. As uh, every so often they are in the service with us and get to be in big church. And they have some notes they can follow along. There's some questions for you to also be listening in the message, kids, to be able to... um, be able to answer and so be listening for that as we we go along through the message and and uh, we're just glad that our kids can be a part of this here this morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18 is we are continuing on in our chapter by chapter, verse by verse study here of the book of Acts. We've been spending four years on this but not four complete years obviously. This is our fourth fall that we've taken a chunk of the book of Acts, and we are uh, working through it. And, uh, and so this morning we are in Acts 18, and we'll be turning over the page to Acts 19 as well. In this room here this morning, we have longtime believers. We have people who've walked with the Lord for many, many years, in fact, even decades that they would give testimony. We have in this room newer believers who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior perhaps just for a number of months or, or for a number of years and, 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 and learning and growing and, and uh, you would consider yourself still a new believer. And then we also have those who have not yet personally trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. As well, along with that, there are those that are no doubt here that perhaps you are religious, you have been devout, you have grown up in church, and you believe and think that you might be saved, and your life is even evidence of a lot of spiritual activity and involvement, and yet truly you may not be saved. You may not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I trust that that, whoa, gets your attention a little bit. That's kind of a bold statement, but we see this time and time again in the Word of God that we ought to examine ourselves. We ought to examine our lives in light of the Word of God. And this is why we read the Word of God. And this is why we go to God's Word, not just for information, but it is our authority. And, and, and we read it just not, to not be informed or entertained, uh, but, we, but we read the Word and we come under the preaching of God's Word to be changed, to be transformed uh, through the examination of our lives. And, and as I've stated, stated last week, stated again today, God's Word isn't just for our information, information or inspiration, but it's for our transformation. And sometimes we get comments um, uh, here as a church, wow, you, you guys at Harvest, you take the Bible really serious. You better believe it is because it is our source of truth. We, we, don't, we don't need any other source books to have a source of truth. It is the Word of God. And, and so, yes, we take it. Yes and amen. When I hear comments, we take it seriously. But I just trust it's not in our knowledge, but it's also in our application of the Word of God. And so it is my prayer personally that for each one of us, even here this morning, that we we just wouldn't stop and we just wouldn't settle in where we are at with the Lord, that, that we wouldn't settle for our childhood, teenage, or early years as a believer, understanding and experience and knowledge, you know, because you've grown up, you've done a lot of Bible studies, you've even led Bible studies, maybe you even went to Bible college, uh, all of these different things, but that you don't stop, that none of us stop, that we continue to keep learning and growing in the Word of God and being challenged in that way. Like, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, he declared, teach me, Lord, 
teach me, the, uh, te- teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end, to the end of my life that we would follow his decrees. Give me understanding so I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. It's going to be a constant temptation in our lives. And turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. I trust that that would be our prayer here this morning. And that our lives, each one of us here today, we would, our lives would be marked with more. More of God's word. More of Jesus that we would want to get to know. That our lives would not just be about more comfort, more money, more power, more recognition, more status, more knowledge, more business, more connections, more followers on social media or or something like that, or more likes, that, that that isn't where we find our identity or find our approval from people, but oh, oh, that, that in all of these things, we would desire more and a deeper knowledge and a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and knowledge of his word, a deeper and a greater love for the word, a more and a deeper love for the lost to be able to go and boldly share and declare the truths of God's word. And in Acts 18 and 19 today, we see 13 individuals who indeed received more because they were open for more. 13 individuals who were challenged and confronted by God's word uh, that was spoken to them, the truth that was spoken to them by God's servants. And they were open to, to what God's servants had to say in their lives. And because of that, they were transformed and their lives would never be the same. In fact, the cities and regions were turned upside down because of this. And I pray that that would be something that would happen in our hearts, that God would get to the heart today, that he would get to the heart of each one of us just as he was able to get to the heart of these individuals in our text we'll be looking at. One of them who needed just some further teaching and, and, and correction and understanding in the ways of God. And then we see 12 religious, very devout men who needed to get saved. And so here this morning as we, we look at this passage, I'm going to give you kind of the outline. There's nothing fancy about it. There's two observations and then we're going to close with a question. And, uh, and, and we'll be here a while, but, but, but we're going to work through this. First of all, uh, the first thing, God blesses a humble heart. I encourage you to write that down. God blesses a humble heart. Second of all, we have here God, God saves a religious heart. And then thirdly, just the practical application, where's my heart? Where's my heart in all of this? And that God would do a work as we get to the heart of the matter of where we're, we are at here this morning. Last week, as we were in chapter 18, we saw Paul was in Corinth. He's on a second missionary journey. It's coming to an end. And, uh, and, and we looked at his encounter there with Aquila and Priscilla. Just love that couple and, and just what they meant for the gospel. There he was with his tent-making buddies, Priscilla and Aquila, for a total of 18 months. There they are preaching the gospel. They're seeing God do an amazing work. He had unique supernatural protection from any, any kind of uh, abuse or, or beatings that was so norm for him at, at, uh, during this season in his life. And, and there they are sharing the gospel. They're seeing people getting disciples and the church get established there in the city of Corinth. We're there about 18 months. And then in chapter 18, verse 18, we see that Paul was wanting to get to Jerusalem. His time in Corinth was coming to an end. And you'll see it there on the map where, where he's going from, 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 from Corinth. And, and, and uh, he, he's wanting to get to, to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. 
and, and we'll, we'll highlight those in a moment. And so he leaves Corinth and he gets to Sancria, uh, which is just a town there right beside Corinth, and he cut his hair. Kids, what did he do? What did Paul do to his hair? He cut his hair. You've got to write that down. That's one of the answers in, in your question is, is just to make sure you're awake and then poke your parents and make sure that they're awake here this morning. And, 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 and so, so he cuts his hair. And you think, why did he cut his hair? Why, why does he leave Corinth, go to this other city and cut his hair? Well, more than likely what he was doing here was based on Numbers chapter 6, he was fulfilling a Nazarite vow. And this vow w- was something that, um, that was a Jewish custom that, that you read about in, in number six, and it, and it was a way of, of giving God thanks for, for his grace and for unusual protection that God provided for him in the city of Corinth. And, and so he's wanting to, and the last part of fulfilling that vow is getting to Jerusalem and, and getting there within a certain amount of time. I believe it's 30 days that uh, after making that vow, he needs and, and cuts his hair, he has to get to Jerusalem to finish that vow. So he's in a bit of a hurry to get to, get to Jerusalem, but before he does that, he stops in Ephesus. And, and so he, he sails across um, to Ephesus. And, and where does he go? Where does Paul go when he goes in a new city? Where does he go? Do you remember that? Where does he go first and foremost? To the synagogue. And what does he do? He starts preaching Jesus. And there they received him really well. And they're like, hey, can't you stay longer? You know what? We want you to stay. He says, no, I'm on. You know, well, he probably didn't do this. He's probably pointing some sundial or something. I, I got to get rolling. I got to get back to, to Jerusalem. And, 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 you know, and, and I'll come back. And, and, and he said, and I love what he says here. He says, if God wills. If God wills, I'll come back. And, uh, and, and he's definitely wanting to get back to Ephesus. And later on, we see indeed he does. And so in verse 21, he, he says that if God wills, um, I will return. I'd love to come back. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in, in, in uh, Ephesus with, with uh, the newly started church and with the new work that is going on. And then in verse 22, if you notice it, it will say in most of your Bibles that he says it goes up to, he goes up, which means to Jerusalem. Whenever you see that as a reference, because Jerusalem was high and the temple was, um, was just considered going up to Jerusalem. And so he goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church there, fulfills his vow, and then he goes down to Antioch. And, and there, that's kind of his sending base. That's where that missionary journey started two to three years before that. All in all, this whole little journey was about 4,500 kilometers that he would have walked most of it. That's a, a 4,500 kilometer journey. I guess he did get to sail on, on some of that. And, and this took him two to three years that was part of the second missionary journey. Just to give a little perspective on the distance of, of the distance he covered, that would be similar from Kelowna to our sending church in Oakville. Actually, even Oakville would still be, uh, or, or that 500 kilometers would even be, or 4,500 would be a little further. Kelowna to Oakville is about 4,000 kilometers. And so, so he's going, uh, taking this, this journey, visiting the churches, planting churches, sh- preaching the gospel, seeing God do great and mighty things, and, and he brings it to an end in Antioch. Now, while this is all happening... Well, he is there in Antioch, and he's just no doubt resting and visiting some with his, his sending church in Antioch. There is a, a huge thing that ends up taking place, a massive event that takes place with a profound and powerful effect on the church that would last uh, for time and eternity. And, and, and no doubt part of that is, 
even why we are here today. How God does something significant, and he doesn't even use the Apostle Paul for this. And, and this is where we come to our first point. God blesses a humble heart. Look at it in chapter 18, verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, Apollos, just to give a little understanding here to who this guy was, because he became a major player when it came to the, the early church here and, and how God used him. Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, and, and you'll see that on the map. You just kind of see that's the north part of Egypt on the very bottom part of that map, and he was from Alexandria, which was the largest city in northern Egypt. It was a major city. It was a center for philosophy and education. It was famous for its teachers and philosophers, and this is something else pretty amazing about Alexandria is that it boasted of a library of 700,000 manuscripts. What a library that would be, and to think that all of the, no printing presses, no photocopiers, no print machines, nothing like that. All of those 700 manuscripts that were in that library were all handwritten books and material. And so, so, so that's a pretty major library that went on. This was a place where you had Greek and Jewish culture um, mixed together. And, and as there were about one-third of the population were Jews that had been scattered there um, centuries before that. And so, so here we see that, that, that there's a great Jewish presence there. And it was an incredible place for learning and for being taught. It was there in Alexandria that the gift of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was provided. And so this was a major city. This is where Apollos was from. And so it is from this place with great education, great understanding of Greek culture and Jewish culture, as well as the Word of God in the Old Testament Apollos was trained there. And so what we see here in this description that we have, he took full advantage of the training opportunities that he had as he was competent in the scriptures. And, 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 and so we see some of these, these attributes or, or um, what made Apollos who, who he was. And, and he was eloquent. He was an eloquent speaker. He was very gifted at speaking. He was fervent, it says. He was competent and mighty in the scriptures. And he was passionate. He, there was a fervency about him in, in, in the Holy Spirit's power. He could communicate effectively to his listeners. He was able to speak the truth of God in all of its beauty and with passion. When he spoke, people listened. And it's interesting to note when it says fervent in spirit, in the Greek it says fervent in the spirit. He was working in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this again, the same phrase in Romans 12 when, when he talks of the Holy Spirit. But now, let's face it. You can have a great speaker. You can have someone who's passionate, filled with great knowledge. And yet they may have nothing to say. Or you can have someone who has great knowledge, a brilliant mind, might be a professor, a teacher, a scientist, a pastor, a theologian. They have all this great knowledge, but they are so boring. It's like watching paint dry would be more exciting than, than, than listening to them, and you can barely stay awake. And, and, and Wayne Grudem is, is one of the foremost theologians in our day. He's written, in fact, um, a couple of the books, actually, that, that we have have been written by him or have been edited by him as... as um, 
He has, has overseen some, some great theology books that, that are, are greatly used today within the Church of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, Charlotte and I heard him speak at a pastor's conference. And it was a Monday morning. We flew in late that, got in late that Sunday night. And, and Monday morning, I think it was like a 7.30 start. It's like, who, who in the world plans a pastor's conference where the first event starts at 7.30 on a Monday morning where most of these guys uh, have been preaching, they've been in churches, and then they all fly into a city and are there for a retreat. And they have Wayne Grudem speak. And oh my, was he dry. <laughs> Great knowledge, amazing knowledge. Charlotte was writing it down, and I was like, this is so boring. You know, like, like kill me now sort of thing. You know, like, like I could be back in bed sleeping. You know, I came for this. I'm... In the end, he tied it together, and it was an amazing talk, but, but he didn't exactly have a very lively presence. And, and uh, in fact, this is a true story, and, and I, I have people who will back it up. I heard of a pastor who was so boring as he was preaching that he fell asleep while he was preaching. His voice just continued to get slower and slower, and next thing, and he had a big wooden pulpit, and next thing you know, he just completely stopped. And one of the ushers and one of the elders had to come and wake him up and probably wake up a few others, and, and then he continued on in the message. And, and sometimes you can have that where, where somebody may have great things to be able to say. They're just maybe not the best communication, uh, very good at communication. Or as I even said already, you may have somebody with great commu communication ability, but they have absolutely nothing to say. It's like, wow, I got all fired up, but did nothing for me. That was just, you know, in, in the end, it was just a, a, a lot of pizzazz and a lot of passion and there was no content. Well, Paulus, he, he didn't suffer from, he, he, he had both. He was, he had great content as well, he had great commu communication skills we see here. We see that he was eloquent, he was fervent, he was passionate, he was competent in the scriptures. And, and, and we see this, and, 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 and the word there, when it says fervent, means literally burning or boiling hot. He would have exemplified what Lloyd-Jones, the, the old preacher, said. This is a definition of logic on fire. This guy was on fire as he was able to proclaim the truths of God from the Old Testament. But something was missing in Apollos' teaching. And in verse 25, the last part, it says, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So there were some deficiencies or some gaps in his understanding and his teaching in regard, as we see here, to baptism. And it would seem that, that, that he didn't quite fully understand or know about the new covenant practice of baptism that was established by Jesus. And, and, and it says then in verse 26, look what it says. It says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, what did they do? When they heard him preach and heard that, hmm, he's a little off, what did he do? What do they end up doing? Did, did they stand up and say, hey, buddy, you're not quite right. You gotta, you're not saying that quite right. Did they embarrass him publicly? Did they pull him aside right in the lobby of the synagogue after the, afterwards as people are heading out the door? And, and, and did this become the time of teaching and correction for him? Um, no, they didn't do that. Did they, did they go to the prayer team of the synagogue with a prayer request about the questionable preacher that they had there that day and they, they decided that they had to, you know, just, just get out, you know, and, uh, you know, get this news out and, and, and get people um, praying about this teacher who wasn't quite right. Did they start posting parchment notes all over town or all over the synagogues, beware of this guy? No, they didn't do anything like that. It says in verse 26, the last part, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they took him aside, they spoke to him privately, they didn't embarrass him, 
Perhaps they had him over for a meal. And they spent time sharing with him how John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And now because of Jesus, believer baptism illustrates our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what we see here in Apollos was something far greater than all his other abilities and capabilities. Yes, he was eloquent, competent, fervent, passionate, all of these things. But all of these qualities pale in comparison to what we see next about this man is that he was a teachable man. He was a humble man. He could have easily have just said, fine, you don't like what I have to say? I'm just going to take, I'm going to go to another synagogue. I'm going to go to another city. I'm just going to go someplace else. Or fine, I'll just quit altogether. No, he didn't do that. He was teachable. He didn't end up saying to Aquila and Priscilla, who are you? Look at me. I was trained in Alexandria. You're tent makers for crying out loud. Like, you know, like I have quite a bit of education here and, and, uh, and, and, and you're trying to teach me something? No, what propelled Apollos into greatness for the kingdom of God, it wasn't his eloquence or his competence or his passion, but it was his teachable and his humble spirit. He just didn't stay with what he had grown up with, with his teaching that he had understood even from no doubt a young age. He was willing to learn more. He was willing to get deeper into the truths of the word of God and the reality of the Christian life and what it is all about. And because of that, the Lord used him in a powerful way. Look at in verse 27, and it says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And so here the church sends a recommendation, and I wouldn't be surprised if Priscilla and Aquila were a part of writing this recommendation. As he's going, he's going with some authority. He's going from the church in Ephesus, from the leaders there, saying, Hey, Corinth, we were here a while ago. Remember? Remember us? Hey, you can pay attention. Apollos, he's on track. Listen to him. Invite him into the body of the church there and allow him to have a good and effective work. And when he arrived, it says, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he, was powerfully, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Folks, this is the life that God can bless and that God can use. It's not about our eloquence. It's not about our giftings and our abilities and how we've been wired. The greatest quality in all of this that we see is a teachable and a humble spirit. My uncle, who's been a pastor for many years, one time he, he made this statement and it's always stuck with me. It's a simple statement and it's a simple reminder and, and it's, it's so very true. And he said, said to me and he has said to others, he said, even the donkey who carried Jesus on his back into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday knew that the crowds were not cheering for him. He was just the messenger. He was just the carrier of the truth. He was the one carrying the truth. He was carrying Jesus. And so oftentimes we think that we are something when Jesus and the message and the truth of the word of God is everything. And it's so important that we remember that truth. That whether you are a preacher, a teacher, a small group leader, you, you, you serve God in any capacity, whether you are a boss, an employer, or anything like that, we are simply messengers. We are to be teachable and we are to be humble. humble. There is nothing great about us. It's all because of Jesus. Any gift, any ability, the, the very breath that we have that we're drawing right this moment is a gift from God to us. 
It's all from him. Anything good that has come and has resulted in your life is a blessing from God in our lives. And, and, and we are to be so thankful and, and, and remind, reminded that, that we are nothing but God is everything. And the greatest quality that we can give to those around us is a teachable heart as a boss, as an employer, as a teacher, as a student. In the sports that you play, in the neighborhoods where we live, that we would be teachable and humble people. God can use that, and he will use that. All of our God-given talents and abilities, listen to this, will eventually be shipwrecked without humility and without a teachable heart. Are we humble? Are we teachable? Are we open towards correction from the word of God? I'm thankful for those who speak words and have spoken words faithfully, not always appreciated, into my life over the years. So oftentimes, when we get challenged, when we get called on something, the inner lawyer comes out. We start defending ourselves. And, and yet, as we allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in and through us, we see that, hey, they were right. And sometimes, maybe they're not right, but that even takes a humility and a teachability to be able to come alongside and, and talk with and, and be able to have a conversation and a continuing relationship in that way. Now, apparently, um, what ended up happening, God used Apollos in an incredible way. Apollos became one of God's great and effective ambassadors for Christ. And, and, and even some people actually preferred Apollos than the Apostle Paul. He was a quite possibly a better preacher, a better teacher. Uh, perhaps he was good looking. I mean, some, some believe that, that Paul was just a short little, little guy and nothing wrong with being short, but, but you know, and, and some would say uh, that, that quite possibly that Apollos was, you know, a, a, a larger man and, and, you know, just, just there was a charisma about him and, and, and who knows what it was. Some people just preferred Apollos over Paul and, and that didn't bother either one of them. We see in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, Paul writes, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so Paul is saying, hey, I planted, I, I, I started the work, I was a planter there in Corinth, but Apollos came along and he watered it, and, and Paul is so quick to, to then point out, but the real hero, the real one doing the work here was God that gave the growth. True greatness and true effectiveness, we have to remember this, true greatness and effectiveness for Christ. You want to make a difference, you want your life to count? It's going to come from a heart that is teachable, that is humble, that is willing to go deeper in our understanding of the word of God. We're just not stopping at the elementary things. We're just not stopping with what we learned in Sunday school or in youth group or in Bible college or in some studies we are part of and now we just kind of coast along. I get really concerned and it becomes even dangerous when I hear of believers who, 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 who admit that they don't open the Bible for 
long periods of times, or maybe the only time it gets opened is on a Sunday morning. Because after all, we know. I, I have this understanding. I, I grew up. I, I know the answers. You don't know all the answers. There's so many deeper riches and truths for us to mine in Christ Jesus. And folks, if we're not moving forward in our knowledge and in our time in the Word of God, we're going backwards. There's no holding kind of pattern in that. Either we're pressing forward or we're moving behind. You can be a Christian for three years, 40 years, 80 years, and you will have never have figured out all the, all the depths and the truths of who God is. That's why we're even providing for you some of these great kind of books and resources to be able to help to, you to, to grow in your understanding and knowledge ultimately of the word of God and, and, and give you a well-rounded understanding of these truths and, and to mine deeply into God in his word. I think of my grandfather. This made a significant impact on my life. He died at age 106. And it was in their 90s. I remember one day driving past. I'd already moved, but, but was coming, uh, was in the city of Regina where they lived, and I was driving past their house. And it was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And the living room light was still on. Just, just one light, and it was over. And I knew right away that's grandpa sitting in his chair. And, and the next day I went over for a visit because every time I would go to visit, when I'd go away, they would have us come and, um, and, 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 and spend some time together in the word and prayer. And of course, grandma would feed you and, and, and have a time together. And I, re I ended up saying to them, I said, grandpa, were you up late last night? And my grandmother just kind of rolled his eye, her eyes and said, yes, he just stays up. He stays up and up and up in their, in, in their cute German accents. They would say, he just stays up and up and up and I have to come. And I get him at 11 o'clock or 11.30 and I say, daddy, it's time for bed. Let's go to, let's go to bed. Come on. And, and she says, and he's there just reading the word. And he looks at me with tears in his eyes and he says, the pages just fly by. I can't get enough of the word of God. This was a man who walked with Jesus for years, for decades, saw, saw the power of the gospel and God do a work in his life and his family and even in his 90s and even into well over even 100 years. Just, he canceled the newspaper subscription. They put the TV in a room that had very uncomfortable chairs because they weren't about watching TV. It was about the word of God. And just the desire for the word of God. And what an example. What an example that is. Of a grandfather who, who just couldn't get enough of the word of God. He was teachable. He was humble. He, he, he knew the word of God so well, but he just wanted more. And I pray and I trust that would be the heart and the attitude in each one of us here today. That we would want more. We'd have a teachable, growing, a hungry heart for the word. The truths that are so deep and so beautiful that we see more and more of our great God as we dig into his word. Second thing we see here is that God saves the religious heart. Now, in, in chapter 19, we turn the page over um, into chapter 19. We see that Paul is, is now about to begin his third missionary journey. And he starts out, we take a new map here. This is a different map than what we've seen because this is the one that, 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 that shows us the third missionary journey that he was a part of. And in verse um, 1 of chapter 19, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland county and came to Ephesus. Remember, he wanted to get to Ephesus, but he kind of takes a slow route to Ephesus. 
is he could have gone by sea, but instead he does this kind of zigzaggy one because what does he want to do? He wants to visit the churches that he was a part of helping to establish and to plant in his first and second missionary journeys. And so he kind of takes the long route to, to get to Ephesus. And we just see again here, we see this evangelistic zeal in the Apostle Paul, but his desire to come along to strengthen and to disciple the, the believers in those churches and, and to see how things were going, to bring some encouraging words and some teaching to them. And so we see that he gets to Ephesus and he, when he gets to Ephesus, he spends approximately three years there. This is the longest he spent any period of time on any one of his missionary journeys. And while he was there, it says at the end of verse one, and we'll continue reading here, you can follow along, chapter 19, it says, there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And so, just to get an understanding here, Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds some disciples, and unfortunately, these men were not true disciples of Jesus. You say, but they call them disciples. But the word disciple just also simply means a follower. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were a dis disciple of Jesus. Alistair Begg calls these guys uh, 12 almost Christians, and John Stott calls them Old Testament believers. And yet they're called these disciples, but they're followers. And we ended up finding out that they were followers or disciples of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus. He, he was the one who called people to repent and to be baptized, but it was simply a baptism of repentance. It wasn't the baptism that Jesus instituted and called us to, to be a part of as followers of Jesus Christ. And so something was amiss when Paul came into Ephesus and he came across these 12, these 12 disciples. He, something wasn't quite right in what he observed or in the conversation conversations that he had, and so he asked them, no doubt, some important questions, and, and then we end up seeing him, him come right out here and, and ask them further. It became very clear to him that they weren't saved, that they didn't truly understand the gospel, that they did not possess the Holy Spirit, because a saved person has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells in them. And folks, this is so important for us to know and to realize that, that if you want to know, if you simply have just religion that you are saved, or if you... Are, are not saved. It's about what does the Christian life really mean? What is it all about? It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the key to understanding if we have that. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit indwelling in your life? You see, God's word is very clear that true believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. And even when it comes to biblical understanding of this important truth, folks, it's, it, it's important that we just don't simply use narratives like we see here in the book of Acts to be able to build our understanding or our theology. A good her, 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 hermeneutical practice is, is for us to take the narrative and line it up with what the rest of Scripture says, in particular using like the epistles, for example, that are given to us for our instruction. And the rest of Scripture clearly teaches us that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Take, for example, in Romans 8, and there's a number of verses, I encourage you to write these down and look these up. Romans 8, in particular, whole chapter is amazing. Verse 9, though, states is pretty clear. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's pretty clear. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And even Jesus' words in John 14, and he's promising about sending the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will know him for he will dwell with you and will be in you. You will know the Holy Spirit's presence and power in your life if you are saved. And you see, this story has a great ending. And Paul said, it says here in verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with with." The baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So here we have these religious, these spiritual men who get saved, who get baptized, and then they are filled with the Holy Spirit, we see, and, and they begin speaking in tongues. Now, folks have to understand that this pattern is not universal in the early church, in the book of Acts. Not every convert had this kind of manifestation when they came to Christ. What was normal was repentance and faith in Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the possession of the Holy Spirit coming into their life and a visible expression of this activity was their desire to be obedient and be baptized. This was the normal understanding, but here we see, once again, a mini Pentecost taking place. We see this four times in the book of Acts. We see it, first of all, in Acts 2, in Jerusalem, for Jewish believers, the day of Pentecost, the first and, and uh, first. Uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. Then second of all, we see in Acts chapter 8 in the, uh, with Philip and the Samaritans. And this was the announcement that the gospel was not just simply for the Jews, it was also for the Samaritans. And the third one we see in Acts 10 to the Gentiles that were now, um, that were um, spread out um, throughout the land and, and, and the gospel and the Holy Spirit wasn't just for Jews, it just wasn't for the half-breeds, the Samaritans, it was also for the Gentiles. And now we see that the Holy Spirit is for the Jews that have been dispersed, those that are outside of Jerusalem, that are spread out. What a time of joy, what a time of excitement as they praise God together in other languages and, it's, and, and then it's as they prophesied and, and, and this wasn't foretelling the future or something strange like that, how sometimes that ends up uh, becoming our understanding what that's all about. The word prophesying means literally, there's two words that make up it and, and it says, uh, and, and, and the first one is before and the other one is to shine and so, so they were was shining and declaring before others the truths and the realities of what have taken place, that they got saved and they were giving glory and they were praising God for all that he had done. And these men, they get saved and they're flooded with joy and assurance and they're prophesying, they're declaring, they're telling others what God has done in their lives and the Holy Spirit who bore witness in their lives that indeed they were children of God. You couldn't shut them up. They were on fire. 
And as you keep reading in this chapter, we see that there's a gospel explosion in the city of Ephesus. Next thing you know, they're burning idols. They're, they're taking stuff that, that has been a hindrance and, 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 and things that have been a priority in people's lives and they, they're burning them, they're smashing them, they're getting rid of them and, and the gospel is doing this incredible work. Christ is alive in that city. And Ephesus becomes a major, major center and a major church for the gospel spreading throughout Asia Minor. But Paul was willing to confront them. He saw something that wasn't right. Not to expose them. Not to make fun of them. Not to talk down to them. But to bring them into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And folks, that is why we preach the Word of God. Not just to teach, to inform. Not to talk down. But to inform. And it's not to simply entertain and make you feel good but to bring us into the fullness of life that God would have for each one of us. And so then that leads us to a question. Where's your heart this morning? Are we like an Apollos? A believing soul filled with the Holy Spirit, teachable, pursuing humility, allowing ourselves to be challenged, to go deeper into the knowledge of God's word and his understanding? Is there a great obedience in our life? A deeper heart to worship the Lord? Or have we settled? If we kind of settled, we're not really moving forward. And remember, if you're not moving forward, you're not holding ground, you're moving backwards. It's interesting to note that this great gospel explosion that I just described to you took place in Ephesus and in Acts 19 and, and spread out from there that years later we would find this church getting assessed by Jesus in the book of Revelation in Revelation 2. And he gives them a warning and he reminds them, he says, you've lost your first love. You've left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. You've gotten distracted with other things. You no longer love me. You see, there had been a foundation of faith that was built there in the people's lives and that can be built into our lives. But after a, a time and season and life happens and distractions take place, we lose that freshness. There's no vitality. There's no power. There's no hunger. No hunger for God, for his word. We just go through the motions. There's a lack of joy. There's a deadness. And if this describes you today, folks, you've got to wake up. This isn't normal. If you're not moving forward and you're in this season, I encourage you to do what we're told here in Revelations. And the call for them was to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember when you first got saved and repent. Repent of whatever it is that, that has gotten in the way. Repent of those areas of sin and return. Return to your first love. Remember how things used to be when you used to hunger and thirst. There was a joy and excitement. You were willing to share the gospel with anyone. Bible study happening, small group, prayer meeting, worship time. Man, I was there. I'm just, church doors open, boom, I'm there. I, I want to be part, I'm hungry. I just want to learn, I want to grow. And, and now that doesn't really describe you. Left that first love. No heart to worship the Lord, to rejoice in him. Or maybe you're like one of those 12, one of those 12 disciples who weren't true converts. Their lives would have been full of religious activity and knowledge. Devoutly, they could have easily have followed the teachings of John and very devout followers of his. Uh, of his. 
And maybe even for us, we can be devout, we can be faithful in, in reading our Bibles and serving, maybe even pray to prayer and we're baptized. But have you truly repented of your sins and turned to Jesus as the Son of God and embraced him as Lord and Savior? Sometimes people will say, well, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior at such and such a period or a time in my life, and then on this date, I made him my Lord. Folks, get, we have to get rid of that kind of thinking. You can't divide Jesus up. You can't do that. Jesus is Lord. And if he is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. And this is an important reality and a truth we need to embrace. I'm not talking about simply praying a prayer and, and then just living your life to pursue your own dreams and plans and desires. Pursuing your best life now and just kind of having Jesus there as your little co-pilot, you know, like for a while that was just a terrible bumper sticker. Jesus is my co-pilot. No, he's not. It's bad thinking. He's the pilot. He's the one in charge. He's the commanding officer. He's Lord. Salvation is a call to repent. And so oftentimes we miss over that. We just say, hey, receive Jesus as your Savior. Your sins will be forgiven. No, it's a call to repent. And repent isn't just feeling sorry for our sins and I'm not going to try to get angry anymore. I'm going to stop looking at porn. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cheat on my, uh, on, on my hours at work anymore. I'm not going to do any of those bad things. No, biblical repentance is more than that. It's hating what we have formally loved and have served and the things we've done. And because we understand that the cost of our sin cost Jesus his very life on the cross, that he bore the wrath and the punishment that we so deserve. And it was all put on Jesus. And so when we repent, we understand the cost and the price that was paid for our salvation. And he becomes our greatest and our deepest loyalty, the deepest loyalty of our heart. It's really, it's a change of not simply what we do and what we don't do. It's a change of who and what we worship. We worship him now. We don't worship money. We don't worship comfort. We don't worship titles. We don't worship recognition. We worship Jesus. And I want to just kind of work through a, a few things here with you just so we can be clear on this because this is, this is so vital. This is so important. These 12 disciples almost missed it. But they came into the fullness of life and everything changed. And there was a gospel explosion in their, in their home and in their cities. It's the kind of effect the gospel has. What might a false convert look like today? Got this from Michael Lawrence from the Gospel Coalition. Some of these statements he says that a false convert might look like this, somebody who's excited about heaven but bored by Christians in the local church. Someone who likes Jesus but didn't sign up for the rest, like holiness and obedience and discipleship and suffering. Living a loveless Christian life, just everyone kind of bugs you. Just everyone just kind of drives you nuts. Kind of just, you know, just, just eats at you. Living a selfish life. Every relationship is all about what you can get out of it, how it can help you to get further. Or a joyless life. There's no joy. There's no peace. It's like, oh, I guess we just got to keep on going till you know, go to heaven. The world is going to hell. Look at everything that's going, you know, and, 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 and we just, just joyless. 
The fruit of the Spirit in us, of the Holy Spirit in us, one of them is, is joy. It's peace. Growing in patience. The other fruit of the Spirit we see, the Holy Spirit is in us. This stuff has to be coming out of us. We get bothered by other people's sins more than our own sin. We hold grace cheap and our own comfort costly. You see, when a person is truly saved, your story might sound a lot like this. You see it here even in uh, the book of 1 John as, as we just see this on this slide here. Can you put that up? No, I don't have a genuine Christian, according to 1 John, loves fellow Christians in the local church because he or she loves God. Has a desire, desires fellowship with God and not just ease in heaven. Understands that following Jesus means discipleship. It's the commitment to continual growth. Obeys God out of a love for God. Is eager to confess and turn away from his or her sin and holds grace costly and his own desires cheaply. And this could easily be a person's story that probably is represented in this room is, Jesus was nothing to me, and now I owe him everything because he saved me. Or God's word has become life to me. And I'm eager to get into the word, and when I'm not, when I get distracted and busy, I'm convicted and I want to get back to the word. It's the Holy Spirit convicting and reminding us and calling us to come back. Before, I used to look at people singing and worshiping God and carrying their Bibles to church and thought they were nuts, and now I sing my face off, whether it's in church or in the car or in the shower, because this is what the Holy Spirit does. He testifies and glorifies Jesus. And, and so it's in us, and it's got to come out of us. Before I could sin and sin, I could sin my face off and feel nothing about it, no guilt. And now when I sin, I'm convicted. I understand that my sin is costly. And someone paid the price for my sin. And when we understand this, we're just undone by his mercy and by his grace. There's a love for scripture, a heart for worship, a desire to pray and say, I don't know how to pray. And we'd be like the disciples, oh Lord, teach us to pray. If these things, are perhaps one or many of them are resonating in your heart, you may be just a religious person. Or you may be a believer who has quenched the spirit. You've been distracted and like that church in Ephesus that, that got busy and got doing other things and it's time to return back, to, to return and remember. Remember what Christ has done in your life in those early days. Repent, go back to the cross, back to the foot of the cross and we believe by faith that we're forgiven and, and believe and receive the Holy Spirit afresh and anew into your life. We'd be filled every day with the fullness of the Holy Spirit to live in the power of the Holy Spirit so the fruit of the Spirit continues to grow and develop in each one of us. Perhaps today you're an Apollos and just need to continue to keep in a humble spirit and a teachable spirit to keep learning in God's word and growing in the boldness that he gives. Let's bow together in prayer.
band is going to come and they're going to lead us in some worship here at the end. But I just want to read some scripture to you. Just want to read these words over you, just encourage you to even close your Bibles and have your heads bowed as you allow truths that we've been talking about here to just wash over your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Isn't that good news? But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't know Jesus today, believe in him today. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And in John 7, Jesus, he stood up and he cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh God, I pray that today, these truths and these realities of these 13 men would speak to our hearts today that we would look and say, hey, I want to be an Apollos. I want to keep going. I want a teachable and a humble heart. Oh God, help me to do this. Would you fill me with your spirit anew and afresh? Perhaps it could be like those disciples who thought they were saved. They were religious. They grew up believing these important truths, and they were good truths. It just wasn't the complete truth. They didn't fully know you personally. And when they repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and were obedient in baptism and could not shut these guys up. Oh, God, I pray we would be a Paulus and we would be disciples like this, that you would be at work, and as these words of Jesus, that out of our hearts would flow rivers of living water, that we would be fruitful, people walking the face of this earth in our work, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and we would be people declaring your truth by the way we live our lives and by the words that we speak, life-giving words. May we be teachable and humble, filled daily with the power of your Holy Spirit, always desiring more of you, more of Jesus, more of the word. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to sing and worship and just even encourage you. Sheon's just going to have you remain seated for a time and then he'll ask you to stand and allow the truths of these words just to pour over your life. 
And I trust that then together we make this solid declaration together as we worship our Lord together.